0: Well, for the last few months, we have covered the attributes of God, those unique characteristics of God. We've explored the following attributes and in this order, his self-existence. Remember, God is a being that he doesn't need anybody else to exist, unlike every other creature in the world. And and we see that by his name, I am who I am. God's self-existence, the three omnis, remember Omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, truthfulness, goodness, justice, love, holiness, immutability means he doesn't change. And his faithfulness. So I hope you've enjoyed this series so far as we've learned about our incredible God. Because God is the greatest subject and he's the greatest person that we could ever study. That famous British pastor Charles Spurgeon put it so well. The highest science, the loftiest speculation... The mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. And not only that, the Lord himself says that the most important thing about a person is their knowledge of him. Jeremiah nine twenty three. the Lord said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. Friends, at the end of the day, what really matters is not your intelligence, your strength or your money. What really matters is that, you know, God. And that you know him well. And the incredible thing is that God has made this knowledge available to all people. It's not just for the rich or for the mighty, but it's for all people. And if that wasn't good enough, God wants to know you. He wants to more than just meet you halfway. He wants to know you. This incredible God with all of these attributes wants to know you. And he wants you to grow in your knowledge of him. Hosea 6.3 said, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. 2 Peter 3.18 commands us, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So scripture rejects any kind of notion that God is somehow unknowable. Rather, God is personal. He can be known, and it is the greatest possible thing we can know is to know him. However, Scripture is also clear that God is beyond our full comprehension. What some call the mystery of God. We know enough for salvation, and we know enough to grow in godliness. But not a complete knowledge of God. In other words, we can know God truly, but we can't know him fully. Our God and our knowledge of him, it is partial and will always remain partial. The finite cannot know truly the infinite, right? Only God can know God fully. The ancient church theologian Basil the Great said, the knowledge of God consists in the perception of his incomprehensibility. Did you get that? God is a mystery, not because of what we do not know, but because of what we do know. When you know God, you know that he is incomprehensible. God's greatness and his knowledge testify that it is something that goes beyond what we could possibly fully fathom. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts... Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So this morning, church, we're going to explore the mystery of God. I thought it'd be a great way to conclude our series. We've learned much about God and we want to continue to do so. But we also need to be reminded that we're never going to figure him out, right? And that that's actually a good thing, not a bad thing. So my hope is that the mystery of God stirs in our hearts a fresh sense of wonder and awe about this great God that we love and that we serve. So there are many mysteries with God that we could talk about here this morning. We could think about and talk about how God is eternal, Right. Um, In some ways, it's easy to understand how things can stretch out and go for a long time. But how in the world does God not have time? Because we always are operating within the confines of time. But God is outside of time. How does that work? Or how could God create a universe out of nothing? Right? There was nothing. Not a big empty space that was always there. There wasn't even a space, was there? There. There's nothing. God created the universe out of nothing. How's that possible? Or how is the fact how can how, how can we make sense of the fact that God knows all things and he knows all things that could possibly be, right? The hypotheticals, every possible situation, God knows it all. Speaking of God's omniscience, On a lighter note, I read this past week about a gentleman named William Phelps who taught English literature at Yale for 41 years until he retired in 1933. One time he was grading exams shortly before Christmas and came across this note from a student who said, quote, God only knows the answer to this question. (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) Giving it his best shot, right? So the professor writes back with this note, quote, God gets an A, you get an F. <laughs> Happy New Year. God knows it all. So many things we could talk about. But for the sake of time, let us focus briefly here this morning on three great mysteries of God. Three great mysteries of God. Things that just blow our minds. Or as the rabbit said from Winnie the Pooh, a mystery of the most mysterious kind. Something that is just beyond mystery. These are the great mysteries that we could point to when it comes to who God is. The first is the mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity. The Trinity is this foundational belief that we have within Christianity that God exists as one divine essence in three persons. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, but the teachings that encompass the doctrine are found in Scripture and was clearly affirmed by the earliest Christians and then hammered out in later years by creeds of the church, like the Apostles Creed and the Nicene Creed. Now, to clarify, this belief of one divine essence in three persons is not a contradiction, a contradiction means that two statements categorically deny one another. The statement that God is one essence and three persons is not a contradiction. A contradiction would be to say that God is one essence and three essences, or God is three persons and one person. The belief in the Trinity doesn't affirm those things, so it is not a contradiction. Instead, what some people will call it is a paradox, something that is a seeming contradiction, but isn't actually a contradiction at all. In other words, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. And that's why it is impossible to explain fully the Trinity by using analogies that we like to do sometimes, right? We take human things, human experiences or things in nature like a shamrock and we use them to try to understand the Trinity. There's nothing wrong with that and it might help us get a little bit down the road. But at the end of the day, all those analogies fall short, don't they? All right, emphatic back there. They do fall short. We can, right? And we should grow in our understanding of the Trinity, but we're never going to understand our triune God. The famous evangelist and theologian John Wesley said, quote, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. The Trinity is a great mystery. The second great mystery is the incarnation. At Christmas, we celebrate this fact, right? That God took on humanity and was born into this world. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 2.9. Wow, what a verse. What a great mystery. And we sit and we try to think, okay, so how does that work? How can deity and humanity combine together, right? How do they unite together? Or how can God's attributes like his, his omnipresence mesh with being a localized human being? How can God, who's omniscient, learn things as it says of Jesus when he was growing up? How can God, who's immutable, become uh, a, a man who is changeable? Again, like with the Trinity, there is no contradiction there. But it's a paradox, isn't it? It's a mystery. In one of his hymns, Charles Wesley, the other brother, said, Our God contracted to a span." ...incomprehensibly made man. The incarnation is a mystery, isn't it? It it, it defies our understanding to a complete degree. But yet, it is a mystery that the church has embraced from its founding. And in fact, it embraced so strongly and so fully... ...that the church was willing to die for the belief that Jesus was God in human flesh... The persecutors would come along and just say, hey, all you have to do is to deny this belief and you're fine. We'll let you go. You won't go to prison. You won't die. But yet. The church was convinced. That Jesus is fully God in human flesh. And as persecution finally kind of abated in 325, when there was the opportunity, the church leaders crafted the Nicene Creed as leaders gathered from all over the Roman Empire to express their belief in the incarnation. And they wrote, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, Of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. The incarnation is a great mystery. Would you agree? How about one more? The third great mystery is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. On one hand, Scripture clearly teaches that God is sovereign over all things. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. In his great book about God's attributes, A.W. Pink said, Being infinitely elevated above the highest creatures. He is the most high Lord of heaven and earth. Subject to none. Influenced by none. Absolutely independent. God does as he pleases. Only as he pleases. Always as he pleases. None can thwart him. None can hinder him. God is sovereign over all things. Past, present, future. He's sovereign over humans and angels. But on the other hand. Scripture clearly teaches human responsibility, right? God doesn't coerce human choices, but we make them according to our choices, don't we? He didn't force you to come to church this morning. You chose to come to church. And the invitation is open to believe in Christ for salvation. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we make real choices. We are not puppets. But we never do anything beyond God's sovereignty. So pray tell. How exactly does that work? How does God's sovereignty and human responsibility then fit together? Again, they don't contradict each other. But how they fit together is a great mystery. Would you not agree? Charles Spurgeon wrote, quote, If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. He goes on to say, Speaking of them, they are two lines that are so neatly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God whence all truth doth spring. So God's sovereignty and human responsibility in our minds, they don't intersect, right? They're always running parallel. But what he's saying there is they do intersect in the mind of God. There is no contradiction. So then what do we, how do we respond to all of this, these mysteries of God? Well, I think we should re- should respond, first of all, with humility. God is altogether different than us. I know that might be a newsflash for some of us. But he really is altogether different from you and I. And there are things that we will never understand fully. And we need to accept that. Moreover, God has not chosen to reveal everything he could reveal to us. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God simply just doesn't tell us everything. You say, why does he do that? Because he's God and you're not. So we should have a posture of humility toward the mystery of God. In Romans 9, you see a great example that Paul is just diving deep, deep, deep into the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And he meets someone in a kind of an imaginary conversation who's questioning the sovereignty of God and questioning God. And Paul responds by saying, quote, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? He's the potter. We are the clay. We should be humble and not grow frustrated that we cannot solve the mystery of God. But to humbly know our place. And that also then leads to the second response. We should respond with praise. These mysteries show that we can't fully comprehend God, but it should stir within us a sense of awe and wonder. Going back to Romans, Paul, he covers these remarkable ways of God. He talks about this magnificent eternal plan of salvation and how it unfolds. And then after this incredibly deep survey, he says in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. See, friends, Paul was perhaps the greatest theologian. God revealed so much to him. But you know what it made it, what, what it did for Paul is that it didn't make God smaller, it made God larger. Does that make sense? The more he learned, the more he realized. And and I agree with that. The more you learn about God, the more you realize you don't know. The more you realize the infinite chasm between God and mankind. Each step that you take in knowing more about God, every step that you take, you realize the horizon just got broader, didn't it? The more you know of God the more you should realize and embrace the mystery of God. You cannot put God in a box. And I don't know about you, but I'm good with that. I don't want a God that I could figure out. Because with my pea brain, that would not be much of a God. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, here's someone who didn't have a pea brain, the great Augustine theologian. He said, We are speaking of God. Is it any wonder if you do not comprehend? For if you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. So friends, we're never going to outgrow mystery. You can read your Bible for hours every day and you're never going to outgrow mystery. You will actually just deepen the mystery of who God is. And I'm of the persuasion that you will never fully figure out God, even in eternity. We will know more of God than we know now. But even in the new creation, we're never going to solve the mystery of God. We're still finite creatures. We're never going to know God fully. And we can't know God fully. But instead, we're just going to continue to grow in the knowledge of God for the rest of eternity. And that's a great thing. One writer said, we believe that it, speaking of our knowledge of God, will be progressive. And that as their views expand, their blessedness will increase. But it will never reach a limit beyond which there is nothing to be discovered. And when ages after ages have have passed away, he will still be the incomprehensible God. Now as we close, I want to close by discussing a topic related to the mystery of God. But it's distinct in its own way. And that is what many call the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. This topic focuses on God, how why he doesn't make himself more clear that he exists. He know, we know that he has the power and the knowledge to do so, but why does he not reveal himself so that everybody believes, right? Skeptics will point that out and say, well, then God doesn't exist. Even Christians... If we're honest, have times when God seems distant, right? He doesn't answer prayer. He allows really hard trials. Ever feel like that sometime? God seems distant. It's a mystery, isn't it? So what can we say to kind of counter the objection of the skeptic and also help us in those moments when God does seem hidden? Let me give us three things just to help us along here. First is this, that God does give sufficient knowledge, revelation of himself. Scripture is very emphatic that God has revealed and has given ample knowledge of himself to humanity. Romans 1, 18 to 20 teaches that God plainly reveals himself through creation. So through creation, we perceive the existence of God very clearly and certain attributes. Romans 2 goes on to talk about how we have a knowledge of God through this moral compass that he has put in every person's heart, this knowledge of good and evil. And we know those things because they come from God. We also see the life and events of Jesus were done in public, right? They weren't hidden so that all could see and learn about them. So internally, externally... God has given sufficient revelation of himself, regardless of what a skeptic might say. Here's the second thing I would say. The chief issue, though, is the condition of our hearts, not the amount of evidence. Evidence can persuade some who were open, but for some folks, it's not going to persuade them no matter what they are told or seen. Scripture gives a lot of accounts of people who have powerful revelations of God, and it still doesn't affect them. The wilderness generation, right? In the book of Exodus, encountered incredible things of God, but continued on complaining of God and grumbling about God. In Jesus' day, people saw unprecedented miracles, right? But yet for for many, they missed the whole point. They just wanted to have that need met to have a, a physical healing or to have food They missed the whole point of who Jesus really was. And of course, many of the religious leaders witnessed these signs, and they just flat out rejected Jesus. Mark 3, Jesus heals a man in the synagogue who had a withered hand. It says immediately after these words, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus says in Luke 16, 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead did you get that so yeah rising from the dead might be greater evidence but they're not even interested in what moses has to say then they're not going to be interested in what someone does if he rises from the dead so the point is is that if your heart is hard just having more evidence isn't necessarily going to convince you is it the chief issue is the condition of our hearts not the amount of evidence here's the third thing I would say, and this is probably a little bit more for believers. Love requires the freedom to choose God. That's the nature of a true relationship, isn't it? You choose to love that person. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. We may not have a lot of affection for an enemy, but you still make the choice to love that person. If you are coerced into loving that person, you don't really love that person, do you? Love requires a choice. Likewise, God wants you to choose him. He is a personal being. He's not an impersonal force. And he desires a relationship with you, not just that you somehow believe he exists. James 2.19 says that the demons believe that that God exists and they tremble. God wants a relationship with us, and he has provided enough evidence, but not to the point that you are coerced into believing in him. He leaves some ambiguity that you must seek him, that you must trust him. The famous French philosopher mathematician put it well, Blaise Pascal. He says, quote, willing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart. God so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given indications of himself, which are visible to those who seek him and not to those who do not seek him. There is enough light for those who see, for those to see who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. And so for the Christian, when there are dry seasons God is always using these seasons, isn't it? Isn't he? To make you more like Christ. And specifically, he wants you to love him even in the hard times. Will you love God when the showers of blessings are not there? Think of a marriage. Every person wants to be loved, right? Every person wants to be loved. Not just if the other one is showering them with love and affection and blessings and so forth. Every person wants their spouse to love them. Not only when times are good. But to love them for better, for worse, to love them for who they are, to love them enough in a deep enough way, even in the midst of the hard times. Right? Right? Similarly, God wants you to love him not just as someone who's blessing you, but in the hard times that he would be enough, that he would be your all in all. Do you see why he might need to be hidden from you, or at least appears to be hidden from you sometimes? But let me encourage you to trust God when he appears hidden. He knows what he is doing. And he wants you to choose to love and to trust him. This is beautifully expressed in the hymn by William Cowper entitled God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's a beautiful hymn. It really should be like on every Christian's wall because it's so poignant. It says, God moves in a mysterious way. He is his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God works in mysterious ways. As I close, let me leave you with this. God is indeed a mystery. He is incomprehensible to us, but we are not incomprehensible to Him. We may not even understand ourselves. I don't. But He knows us fully. And he knows what we need and he knows that what we need above all else is to have him first in our lives, to have a relationship with him and to know him and to walk with him. And if that has never been a a reality in your life, you need to do business with the barrier that prevents that. And that is sin. We need to turn from our sin, acknowledge it for what it is, rebellion toward God, and worthy of eternal judgment. And we need to believe in Christ for salvation, that He forgives us on the cross by His death, and He brings hope and life by the resurrection. And it is only because He is the mysterious God-man, God who came in human flesh, that He can be God and die for all of our sins and to atone for them and be man and substitute for us in our place and to know our condition. That great mystery of the incarnation plus the cross ensures our salvation. Friend, you are known by God. And He is neither impressed with you or dismayed by you. God will accept you if you accept Christ, the mysterious incarnate Son of God, whom we celebrate at Christmas time. Who died on the cross for you. May you walk in faith today. And take his hand. And be his follower. And you will never regret. And you will spend the rest of eternity. Basking in the mysterious glorious light. Of our great God. Let us pray. God we do pray you would help us. To grow in our knowledge of you. To be zealous. To pour over your word. To learn. Devour books. To understand who you are. Because there's great profit in that. But Lord, we also need that reminder about the mystery of God. And Lord, that we would marvel at who you are. May we not shrink you down. As we've said several times throughout this series, that great quote from A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. God, we pray that you would fill each heart and mind this morning with a sense of awe and wonder over who you are. And Lord, I pray for us when there are times when when we are honest with ourselves that you do seem hidden from us we pray that we would be reminded that you are not that you have your purposes and lord that we would continue to seek you we trust with great confidence those words in jeremiah 29:13 you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and we thank you for the love of god shown in christ who has blazed that trail straight to the throne of God. And it's based on who He is and what He has done that we have confidence in You. Thank You for this series, Lord, about who You are, these great attributes. Pray that we would live in light of them more and more. And It's in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.